six, we be in the mix with that rare candy paint job on the whip. I need food for the kids, money for the rent. Fuck a lockdown, baby, I can't do that shit. And I don't never vote, cause I'm fucking broke. And either way, I know the police ain't gon' leave me alone. On a plane by the visit, land rock, need crypto. Told me I should bring the Glock with me, so I packed up my piece and I'm sliding. Cause we might get caught up in a riot. Middle finger Trump, middle finger Biden. Fuck a left, fuck a right, is you riding? Ain't no politics, baby, we just talking From the birds to the bricks, we be in the mix With that rare candy paint job on the whip, who you with? Okay, special episode today. Um, everyone calls us science deniers. Everybody calls us uh, anti-medical, all that kind of stuff. But you know what? We have an expert on today. We have Dr. Jonathan Latham today, a virologist. Uh, doctor, how you doing today? Hey, I'm great. Thank you. And uh, before we get into it, I just because of what I said earlier, um, why don't you go ahead and list your credentials and maybe why you're allowed to talk about the stuff you're allowed to talk about? You know <laughs> what I mean? Uh, just what, why it has any credence. So where can they find your work and uh, like what have you studied and stuff like that? Yeah, no, for sure. So um, my name is Jonathan Latham and I'm a Ph.D. Uh, my Ph.D. was in virology. And then uh, I did some work after that research at the University of Wisconsin in the genetics department, where I studied uh, RNA biology, actually. Very nice. And I have, uh, I have an undergraduate degree in plant science and a master's in crop genetics. And I have a strong interest in genetics, too, as Bob knows, I'm writing a book about uh, genetics and organisms. So... So I kind of think of myself as an all-purpose biologist. You know, I've been to conferences about just about every subject under the sun. So just and promote, you know, I go to these conferences because I'm promoting our work basically and the publications that we write. Yeah. And your your public your main publication is Independent Science News, which you're chief editor of. And I highly recommend yeah. everyone check that yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I forgot to go into that part too. Yeah, yeah, we have a nonprofit called the Bioscience Resource Project. And then the yeah, the we ended up kind of hiving off you know we we published a lot of kind of heavy duty science if you like on that and we wanted to have more of a accessible public face you know and so so we decided to 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 kind of basically start up a website which we've called independent science news yeah excellent, excellent. yeah you walk that line pretty well of being able to break things down for the layman and but still get into it you know and and open up good discussions and yeah i highly recommend everyone check out that website and uh we met talking about and a big focus of your website is on agriculture and, and gmos and also the socioeconomic factors of things like the gates foundation kind of taking control of various narratives which largely was before a lot of people knew about this was like a gmo agriculture thing particularly in the African continent and the Indian subcontinent. And, and now it's turning into more of a, well, people know about Gates from the, you know, the whole vaccine push and his, he's always, you know, the face of COVID now. And it's kind of weird. And people are asking questions about that rightfully. So um, do you want to just, maybe we could start off with a little bit on what you think about all that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, it's interesting that people treat him as an expert on, on COVID and vaccines and all these scientific subjects. And, and yet he has no credentials in those areas at all. You know, he has his whole staff. 
who who work for the Gates Foundation and who basically, you know, are experts in all this stuff, and they could be interviewed by these uh, by these networks and so forth, but they want to face and and so Bill Gates tells things tells people things that frankly are you know the. the there's not good science much of what he says. You know, he often doesn't know what he's talking about, but but the networks lap it up. And, and you know, one of the interesting things about Gates is he has this total appetite for publicity. You know, they really, like the Gates Foundation, in many ways, is a publicity machine. You know, like they're, they're, every initiative they do, every project that they do has a PR angle. You know, the prizes, the grant awards. I remember being at Cornell uh, one time and the, the one of the deans there said they got a big grant from the Gates Foundation and 10% of the money had to be spent on public relations. And like, they were just blown away by this, right? They just could not believe that, that you would spend 10% of your money on just on getting stuff in the media. And, and sure enough, you know, like a, few, uh, a year or two later, articles appeared in mainstream media magazines about what they were doing, you know, which is relatively inconsequential. But but nevertheless, it got written up in, in prestigious national national outlets. So like you can see that the Gates Foundation, you know, if you follow them closely, you can see that public relations is a huge part of what they do. And so that's really interesting because their claimed mandate is to help poor people and to improve public health and so on and so forth. But it's clear that it's agendas that lead the way with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I, I also found it fascinating too, just your whole study of the origin of COVID because right now everybody and even us, we're kind of prisoners of the moment. We kind of forget that it's been a year uh, or, or, and some change, I should say that, that COVID has been, you know, in the, in the world. And uh, what can you tell, you know, the listeners about the origin story? Because that's so far uh, the, the origin of COVID, maybe the, the lab or ch at least the China part of it. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, uh, there's more and more evidence, basically, that the virus came from a lab. You know, if you follow the trajectory of the, the evidence, you know, it went from a position where uh, nobody basically even was discussing whether the virus came from a lab. And then a few people raised questions and we uh, kind of followed those questions a little bit. And, and after a while, it became obvious to us that there was a real case to answer here. You know, there was all this research going on in Wuhan that was on bat coronaviruses that was totally on the, on, on the subject of viruses, virus escapes, but also phylogenetically on the exact viruses that virus that escape that is the COVID-19 virus, right? So, so we came to realize all that. And then we also came to realize that the zoonotic origin theories that people were pushing around did not stack up. You know, there's a bunch of papers that have been published that are cited by the media and by the scientific in the scientific literature, thousands and thousands of citations. There's one called Anderson et al. that was published in Nature Medicine, and basically it alleges that the virus uh, in, was introduced from bats into a pangolin and then into humans. But basically, that story has collapsed. There is basically no evidence for it. You know, it was basically at the time of speculation, and now there's no evidence for it. 
And you see, for example, that China has spent a year, the entire length of the pandemic, scaring the countryside for uh, farmed animals with coronaviruses mm. or wild animals with coronaviruses or some evidence of coronaviruses and smuggled animals and so on and so forth. And they basically found nothing. And what you'd expect, if this was a zoonotic origin, what normally happens is that, first of all, there's a reservoir of, the, of viruses in bats that are closely related to the, to the outbreak virus, mm. right? This is one thing that you'd expect. The other thing you'd expect is like a super closely related virus that's you know 99.9% identical to the one that broke out in Wuhan to, for that to be found in, a, in some animal that comes in close contact with people. You know, in the case of MERS, there was dromedaries. Sorry, I got flies buzzing around. That's all right. <laughs> dromedaries. Are those and, zoonotic and virus flies, by the way? Yeah. They may clean. be GMO mosquitoes. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. They're, they heard you. They heard you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Gates has entered the chat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it gets into every conversation if you're not know. careful. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're not safe. We're not safe. <laughs> I'm sorry, please, please continue. Uh, no worries. And and uh, and so um, in the case of the first SARS outbreak, SARS one, where pe- researchers found civets with like viruses that are basically absolutely identical to what infected people, and none of that has happened in this case, right? So so when you see the research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and you see the failure of people to build a case for a zoonotic origin, you got to basically conclude that the default assumption is that it came from a lab. And we've right. been doing more and more research on trying to figure out some of the details and the specifics about that. And we have, uh, we have our own theory, which is basically that um, the virus originated in 2012. And wow. in t- what happened in 2012 is that some miners got sick and those miners mm. were shoveling bat feces, bat guano. And they were taken to hospital in Kunming. So this all happened in Yunnan, a place called Mojang, M-O-J-I-A-N-G. And these miners were taken to Kunming Hospital. They were treated for a very long time. Uh, Three of them died and three of them survived. But what's really interesting about these miners is they had symptoms that basically looked like COVID-19. And the symptoms... Uh, were associated with the fact that the tests that were done at the hospital appeared to show that they had a coronavirus. Mm. Right? So the, the, the conclusions of the doctors was that almost certainly these viruses, these miners rather, had a novel coronavirus. And the theory that we basically came up with is that these miners were infected in 2012. They were in hospital for a long time. And what happened was that they basically acquired a coronavirus, a novel coronavirus, in the while they were shoveling the bat feces. And they became infected with this coronavirus. And they were basically looked after in the hospital. Some of them were in the hospital for six months. And they were they basically evolved a novel virus, right, inside them, a human adapted virus. And we know that samples from those miners were taken by the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And they were taken to Wuhan, therefore, and that 
essentially what that means is that samples of human adapted virus, novel coronavirus, were taken to Wuhan. And these samples would have been incredibly valuable to researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology because it's basically an epidemic in the process of breaking out, right? This is like scientifically super, super interesting. And considering that China was the country that had SARS, the SARS-1 outbreak mm -hmm. is also a super politically significant event, right? This is an opportunity for these researchers to basically prove their worth, show A, that they prevented it, and B, that they can study these things and understand them better. So. So this is our theory of what happened is that basically they took those samples and one of those samples got loose from the, when they were doing some research on it. Maybe they were sequencing the virus, maybe they were culturing the virus, maybe they were uh, trying to do some kind of gain of function research on that virus. We, we don't know for sure. But, but th so the theory, the theory that we've put forward on our website, and it's been pretty widely discussed, is that is basically uh, that. Is, yeah. there a pre is there a precedent for uh, unintended lab releases to occur in virology labs? Uh, you know, high high level virology labs. Is this a crazy thing to propose, or has this happened before? Is this something that has been mm -hmm. discussed in scientific literature? Yeah, yeah. So, so there are there are quite a few precedents actually. So, so we know, for example, that the SARS one virus leaked, leaked out of Chinese labs. Uh, on multiple occasions and nearly set off novel pandemics. We also know, for example, that the influenza, uh, the what was at the time called Russian flu, was uh, basically a vac. In 1977, the Russians unfroze samples of an old virus, old influenza virus, and that appears to have escaped from a lab and became, you know, when I was in high school, in fact. We got sent home from school because all the kids became sick oh, wow. in 1977, and basically that was a that was a, a virus released from a lab, and mm -hmm. and the it was but it wasn't an engineered virus, right? It was basically what they done is is unfreeze something that had been sitting in their freezers for like 20 years, and what was really interesting about that what what was basically a global influenza outbreak was that only people under a certain age became sick because all the people who were older had already had experience of the virus, but the virus had died out in human populations. Mm. So, so basically all of us young people got sick and our teachers didn't get sick, but, but basically the school came to a halt, you know, because half of the, half of the, half of the school was <laughs> in bed with flu. Wow. And so they closed down the school basically. Wow. And, and so this happened, you know, basically all over the world, similar scenarios happened. So there is a long history, and they, they, I could cite many other examples too. Not necessarily of viruses that went pandemic, but near misses, accidents. Yeah. Uh, you know, from the highest security labs too, right? Like, like these high security labs, you know, they work on the most dangerous viruses, and they also have the worst accidents. So, <laughs> so there's a whole there is a whole set of precedents for a lab, a lab outbreak, and there's been lengthy discussions, you know, theoretical discussions. For example, of if if a virus was to escape from the lab, what kind of virus would you expect to escape from it? From it, the the most likely virus to escape from a lab is one that's that's basically airborne, right? Mm, like many uh, viral diseases are not transmitted by aerial routes, right? Like Ebola, you have to come in contact with with blood, 
And uh, with HIV, you have to have physical contact with yeah. someone. So you have to break the skin barrier to acquire HIV. But these coronaviruses, for example, because you can inhale them and catch the illness, there's a classic, a classic candidate for a lab escape. And secondly, because uh, researchers can catch it without knowing they're sick, right? Many people don't get symptoms. So you can just go home, for, you can catch the virus, go home from work and infect your family and never even know it. So these are, these are very, really very obvious candidates for, for escaping from a high security lab. Yeah. So how do, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, you touched on it a little bit, but you're saying there's kind of many such cases of, of this situation. Like, how does yeah. it keep, how does it keep happening? Like, you know what I mean? Like, like just, it's kind of a dumb question, I guess, but like, just how does it, how, how does it, oh man, I hope this virus doesn't escape this time, you know? And then, it, oh yeah. man, it escaped again. Like, yeah, I, just, <laughs> I, I don't yeah. know. I, I mean, it's a, it's a probably good question because, you know, on the one hand, you know, let me frame this in a scientific way. On the one hand, you've got people going around saying, we need all this money to study coronaviruses because they're dangerous pandemic viruses. And yet these same researchers are handling the exact same coronaviruses in low biosecurity labs, right? Coronavirus is not even required to be uh, handled in level four biosafety labs. You can mm -hmm. do it in level two or level three, right? Like that's how, is somebody compared it to like your dentist. You know, like the biosecurity level of your dentist wow. is how they're handling these viruses, right? So you've got this total disconnect between researchers who basically want to be able to do research, you know, under under low biosecurity conditions. Like high biosecurity conditions are not fun to work under, right? Like you yeah. have to have showers when you go in yeah. and out. You have to put on special negative pressure suits. Mm. You have to be like, like, like you know, use it, taking all these preventative measures yeah. right it's hard to get stuff done it's right. hard you know even you know sometimes they actually all these preventive measures cause accidents to happen in their life you've got a huge bubble suit right you're going to bump into things and so on and so forth <laughs> yeah. right so so there's all these kind of disconnects going on right like why 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 do we get yeah. to research why, why why don't why does nobody uh worrying about this stuff what far more than they should do Right. And it's because there's a lot of conflicts of interest going on here. Right. You've got basically a huge pressure on people to to do dangerous research. And I think that what, what is happening is that, you know, on the one hand, you've got this. I mean, it is a complicated situation. You've got a huge multi billion dollar industry of the vaccine industry, the virus research industry. Uh, biomedical, you know, basic biomedical research, but you've also got people wanting to test products. Like they want to test new drugs on viruses. They want to test vaccines on viruses. So you've got not only people making these uh, pharmaceuticals, but you've got people testing them. Right. And then you've got all these companies, for example, making antiviral agents like detergents and mm. cleaning agents and so forth, right? There's this whole what we call the pandemic virus industrial complex, right? Which is uh, basically a huge conglomerate of institutions, but the money comes in a way from companies, but it also comes from the government, right? The military is also a part of this, right? So the military is wor worried about terrorists, 
right? This is their ostensible worry. I, I'm not sure it's really their real worry, but it's their ostensible yeah. worry that terrorists will weaponize these viruses, right? And so they want to study these viruses. And then there's companies that feed off them who are basically, they want to sell the military a vaccine. Like I discovered the other day that the US military, military spends $250 million a year on anthrax vaccines, right? <laughs> What? So like this is big money, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, they're looking for these companies. They're going to Africa. They're doing research on Ebola, for example. And but they're not interested in protecting Africans from Ebola virus, right? Africans are the people really at risk from Ebola virus. But they do know that the U.S. military is concerned that other countries or terrorists will weaponize Ebola. Like there's this whole scare idea that there will be, somebody will invent an aerosolized uh, inhalable Ebola virus. That will be like incredibly lethal, right? Like the issue with Ebola is it's very lethal, but it's not easy to catch it, right? You have to right. come in contact with people who have significant uh, symptoms and so forth. So like, it's, it's, it's not that contagious. And so if somebody was to make an aerosolized Ebola virus, that the idea is that this will be the perfect bioweapon. Mm -hmm. And there is no such thing as a perfect bioweapon because you're always going to have blowback and you're always going to have uncontrolled uh, spread of the virus and so on and so forth. But they have these ideas, you know, they have these kind of paranoid ideas that are not very different from their paranoid ideas about nuclear weapons and their paranoid ideas about chemical weapons and so on and so forth. But there's people whose interests are served by ginning up these concepts mm. and so you've got this these are all the military as part of the pandemic virus industrial complex because they're supplying the money in many cases to do the research right. right if you look at the companies that are involved in this research quite often they're startup biotech companies who are getting money from the military uh. right so you've got this whole set of of people the military is a huge basically they have an endless budget uh, the, budget beyond all budgets, you know, far bigger than the National Institutes of Health. But so they can fund all this research, they can fund all these startup companies. And then you've got on the other hand, you've got this kind of hyper commercial entities, like the Gates Foundation. And the Gates Foundation is basically the fixer for all these groups, right? So like the Gates Foundation is, they have their own interests, which are vaccines, which are treatments for viruses, they have ostensible worries about outbreaks and so forth. And they, what they're basically doing is they're investing. On the one hand, they're investing in companies that start up companies and vaccines and new products and so forth that are patentable. Like they're, they're basically, there's an article in the New Republic the other day about Gates Foundation undermining uh, patent-free vaccines and mm. medical treatments for the, for the pandemic. Right. So the Gates Foundation has this agenda, this like hyper capitalist agenda where they invest in these companies, but also they don't believe in public health. Basically, they believe that companies should be providing all this, all the products, all the services, all the treatments, making all the decisions. And government should basically step back. So it's a very right wing neoliberal yes. hyper capitalist agenda that they have that nevertheless is depending in a large part on all this military government money, right? It's, it's often like the, the Gates Foundation is yeah. kind of like the fixer 
right? They're organizing it so that the money gets spent in certain ways on ideas that they like and so on and so forth. And so, so there's this, you know, it's a very, com you know, it's very difficult for me to sum up in a few words what the complexities of all this. But, yeah, but what I've given you is kind of like an outline mm -hmm. of what's going on. So wow. you've got, you know, companies and the companies are dependent on venture capital, for example. You know, there's these people that were in Wall Street and, and venture capitalists all over the country who are investing in companies like startup companies like Moderna. And then you've got Big Pharma, too, which is also feeding into all this. You know, they're figuring that they can control the show, too. So you've got all these like, you know, very experienced, very politically savvy, very uh, wealthy people who are all, all of them working their own angles on all this. But basically it ends up, the situation ends up being something a little bit like the military industrial complex. You know, you've got basically government money, but also commercial money right. and patents and all these agendas. And the main difference with the, between the pandemic virus industrial complex and the military industrial complex is the pandemic virus industrial complex has to look good. Right, it has to yeah. like basically have a PR angle to it mm -hmm. as well, right? So like the military industrial complex, nobody expects them to be honest, really. You know, we all kind of expect them to be a bit corrupt, to yeah. be bribing foreign companies. Nobody expects any good to come out of it. Nobody expects them to solve public health problems and so on and so forth. They're just making their their money and spilling nuclear, you know, messes everywhere and chemical messes and. And, you know, they have their whole thing going, right, which we understand moderately well. And but the pandemic virus industrial complex is less well understood because it has this whole PR angle. Right. So, so you have a PR angle in which the front people for the for the PVIC is basically foundations like the Gates Foundation. Like I said, is spending all this money on public relations, you know, controlling the media and so forth. But then you've got the the other front group that's involved in this are the scientists themselves, yeah. right? Because scientists have a really high level of public trust, right? So if the scientists say that it's necessary to go out and collect bats, that it's necessary to do research <laughs> like is going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that it's necessary, you know, that it's normal for people to have bad reactions to vaccines, that it's that, that is normal to work with companies, that it's normal to do testing in private, that nobody, where nobody gets to see the result except the company, and so on and so forth. When, the, when scientists say this, people tend to believe them. The media tends to believe them. So they have this level of credibility that enables them basically to be the front people for what's going on. When, when you know, really behind the scenes is military interest, it's financial interest, wow. And it's and it's you know all these all these kind of you know deeper deep, also deeper ideological interests you know the Gates Foundation the deep ideological interest of the Gates Foundation is basically to undermine public health like trusting government and so yeah. forth right they yeah. they want all these decisions to be made by companies and by uh, by people who are they they consider to be experts who are not the the health and human services and so forth right in britain we have a national health service right the gates foundation is dead set against solutions like that single payer for example <laughs> right, right? Yeah. they're trying to undermine the whole idea of single payer all mm -hmm. the time yeah interesting that's fascinating and this whole shield of scientists and, and the gates foundation being a veneer of trust for the public 
it, I hate to say it, but it really works. Uh, you know, where I have conversations all the time where, you know, it's kind of this, any normal person, any half thinking person admits that there's conflicts of interest with capitalism and scientific research and products that come out of that. And you like, you talked about Moderna, right. Where, you know, where they're, you know, they've been around for 10 years and have never released a product. They're getting billion dollar grants from the government. It's just fascinating how that works. But then, you know, everyone will admit that, that those things happen. They're like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that, that's that's a given. But the scientists are OK. They're like the scientists are these innocent, you know, people just doing their research. And it's not that's not really the case, huh? They're at at the at the at the least they're just uh they're just active soldiers, foot soldiers in this kind of thing. And at worst, they're kind of, they, they obfuscate this whole, this whole machine that's running in the background. Right. And, but yeah, most normal people, I, I think like us three see beyond that, but most, most people don't kind of see that or they don't care. They don't even know who to be mad at. That's the thing. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, they know who, right. Because then the media said, let's get mad at the president, right. For in America, it's, it's Trump, Trump. We would have, we would have just knocked this out of the park if it wasn't for Trump. And, but, but they don't, they don't exactly like like what Jonathan just said, like it's oh, you got to be the military is involved, private money, all this kind of stuff is there's so many angles where like I remember listening to another podcast where they were talking about China versus the US and they say, look, I, I'm not pro China, not pro anything, but I know who to be mad at when something's going wrong in China. But in America, everything's obfuscated. Like you said, it's it's nuts. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to have a, a public relations game going. You know, when, when you have a, you live in a free country, right? Like in China, nobody thinks it's a free country. Like you say, so you, therefore, you know precisely who is responsible. Mm-hmm. You know, the buck stops with the, with the president, right? The leader mm-hmm. of the country. Mm-hmm. Whereas in, in, in the U.S. And, and, in, and in, you know, kind of countries that ostensibly have a free press and ostensibly have a democracy that, where the buck stops is way less clear, right? Mm-hmm. And and so you have all these people. Uh, you know, I was reading about the, I think, uh, I've kind of forgotten which civilization it was, but I think it was the Persians. So they invented the idea that we're invading you for your own good, <laughs> right? So like before the Persians, everybody everybody basically said, you know, we're invading your country, your land, so that we can take it and take your women and children and take your food and so forth. And the Persians came up with this idea that that we're taking your land so that we can civilize you and make things safe for you and so on and so forth. And that's one of the reasons why they were able to build such a successful empire is because wow. they had these kind of public relations, this kind <laughs> of primitive, you know, what we would consider primitive public relations, but but it's become one of the sort of basic tenets of like how you control people is that you tell people that you're doing this stuff to them, which ostensibly they might not like, you know, you're taking their money, you're giving them vaccines, you're undermining public health, you're collecting bats from the wild, but we're always doing it for your own good, right? right? So we have this story that, that is being spun by all these different people and and it's quite hard to see through it because you know the the level of scientific literacy unfortunately in in the country is quite low yeah. and we have all these narratives that are being spun 
about science, like what science is. Like Neil Neil deGrasse Tyson, he had a yeah. statement the other day about yeah about science is just true. Right? <laughs> yeah, and, and steakums. Yeah, and, 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 yeah. And so, so you have. Yeah. So, but this is, you know, this is what people believe, right? Somebody's been, I've been harvesting by a scientist, therefore it must be true, right? Yeah. And, and, but the, the, the proper way to understand science is that it's a process, right? It's not a product. Like a GMO is not a scientific product. A vaccine is not a scientific product. A pharmaceutical is not a scientific product. These are things made with technology by companies for the yeah. most part. Yeah. And science is a different thing. Science is a process and it can be what's what's we know about what we think we know about the world is all provisional. Right. What we thought we knew about the pandemic at the beginning was that it came from a bat and was a zoonotic origin. But what we're now pretty sure of, if you study the data, is that it came from a lab. Right. So like scientific understanding can completely be turned on its head by new facts and new information. So all understanding is provisional. And if yeah. people only understood that one thing, then they will be a lot less taken in by all these scientific scams and more prepared to understand that dietary advice can change from one year to another. Our understanding of EMFs or our understanding of smoking or our understanding of anything can be can alter rapidly. Yeah. And so yeah. but we tell all ourselves all these stories about science. Like the classic one that I always share with people is Einstein. Right? What what Einstein did was basically show that Newton Newton's theory of gravity was completely wrong. Right? Whereas in in high school people are taught that Einstein just tweaked Newton's theory of gravity. Mm. But yeah. that's not true, right? He showed that it was completely wrong. He challenged yeah. it, yeah. The, the, yeah, he he did, he trashed it, yeah. and <laughs> and because because you know Newton's theory of gravity was that mass mass is the source of gravity, and that that there's some kind of connection between the 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 sun and the earth, for example, and and what Einstein showed is that. Gravity is a pro product of the of the space-time continuum, right? It's a it's a basically a it's the mass of the sun is warping the space-time continuum, and and so so that is a completely different theory, right? It gives and many measurements under many circumstances it gives more or less identical results, but the theoretical understanding is completely different, and yeah. and you only can detect that under certain under certain conditions and that's yeah. how that's how we know that einstein's is correct and, and newton's is wrong yeah mm -hmm. and, it, and it loops back to pr right like public relations almost to why we don't challenge stuff right but why we see science as just one kind of like solid moving vehicle right where if you want to just jump in the car and do science with us that's fine but if you don't want you know if you don't want to don't try to change the direction of the car don't try to change the model of the car you know yeah. or anything like that they're like no this is the science car and this is what we're doing and um yeah i, I just circling back to what you said earlier is that kind of your theory about the origin um and this goes on with what we were just talking about your theory about the origin i can't imagine that that's too popular in the science world you know what i mean just just maybe your theory so can you talk about maybe some of the like the pushback you get on that mm -hmm. yeah so so basically you know the scientific strategy of people online has been to ignore it mm -hmm. right so so you know we've got a few emails from people 
saying, wow, your theory is really interesting. Or at one point, George Church tweeted it. And, and so we, you know, some scientists know about our theory, but for the most part, uh, the scientific community, the virology community, has done its best to ignore all these origin possibilities, right? The whole origin discussion, they've attempted to, to basically confine that to the land of conspiracy theories, mm -hmm. right? And they've done that in a very deliberate way. Like you can see that the letter, for example, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a letter to the Lancet and there was another um, scientific paper in, in a journal called Nature Medicine. So these two scientific papers were incredibly influential. But what they basically did is they both used the word conspiracy and they said that the lab origin was, was basically a conspiracy. And so, so that what that meant was uh, that it became very difficult for scientists to objectively discuss it, right? Because in a, in a way, if you, if you read something in The Lancet, for example, then that's basically, it amounts to a threat, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? To, against scientists, that basically you will be totally marginalized if yeah, you yeah. discuss a lab origin, right? And so that's made it really, really difficult. So we've been participating in meetings, for example, basically private meetings with scientists who are prepared to discuss these origin, or origin theories because, because scientists feel that they can't discuss these things in public, mm -hmm. right? So the small minority of scientists who take these things seriously and have ethical concerns, right, about, about the, about the pro progress of virology and the direction that virology is taking, and the gain-of-function research, for example, that went on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, people who have concerns about these things have difficulty publishing their papers. They have difficulty discussing it uh, in public. You know, people have written letters to The Lancet pointing out that they have, um, you know, there's no scientific reason not to discuss the lab origin in the paper yeah. and, you know, refuting points that have been made in The Lancet and so forth. And the Lancet has basically refused to publish any of it. So you're right? so you're saying that there's an anti-science bend to this whole complex that we're talking about. Yeah, they're literally, they're literally just, I mean, that, yeah. Alina Chan is somebody who's worked yeah, on yeah. all these issues. I'm, I'm glad you brought her up because I, I forgot her name and I was gonna I was trying to remember. I'm not I'm not familiar. So she's she has a good Twitter, pretty much only discusses the the lab release, if you know, at least lately. But yeah. go on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, she's been she's been really on this since since the early days and she's and she, brave too right because she's sacrificed she's young right scientist and she's she's yeah, yeah. she has no right? permanent position wow you know who's gonna hire her next you no know, yeah, sure. right? i doubt it yeah. yeah she can come on with us if she wants i mean yeah, that's, yeah. that's about it yeah. <laughs> i mean she is yeah. clearly a really smart person yeah and yeah. she's very concerned about all these virus issues mm -hmm. she, she and she doesn't she doesn't uh you know, she doesn't shirk from bringing up these issues, but she pointed out that, you know, the whole reason why people in the scientific community repudiated Donald Trump, allegedly, was that Donald Trump was allegedly anti-science, right? But then they don't want to discuss the lab origins or publish papers or publish, you know, she's been trying to get corrections to papers that have been published in the scientific literature. So like, for example, there's a, set, a whole set of papers that have been published about viral genomes that appear to be 
at some level or other bogus. Either either there is no the the authors are not releasing the scientific data uh, underlying their sequence information, or the sequence information is simply wrong or absent, and those authors should be called to account. Right? They should be uh, they should be either having their papers retracted by having to publish erratums and addendums and so on and so forth. And people should be allowed to challenge that information in public. But this process is basically not happening. And she's, she, you know, she made the comment on Twitter that, you know, you oppose Donald Trump and yet you yourselves are anti-science, not wanting to discuss yeah. scientific yeah. theories, right? So like there's, yeah. there's basically a game being played, right? And this yeah. is a very, it's a traditional game in science, right? That if you think you're right and somebody else is wrong, even if they're a professor of, you know, or a Nobel Prize winner, you can call them uh, unscientific, right? Or you can even call them anti-science sometimes, right? And it's basically, it's called boundary work, right? That's what the, the social scientists call it. Basically, you know, you're beyond the pale of science. You're not using scientific methods. You're not using uh, scientific techniques or relying on scientific data. And therefore, I'm right and you're wrong. Right. So, so, and this is what's going on in these cases too, right? There's basically boundary work. I'm being a scientist and you're not being a scientist. And, and so this yeah. has been noted for a long time. And it's, it's kind of an interesting thing that the scientific community doesn't study much. Uh, the social science that's been done on science itself or the philosophy of science, yeah. because they would have to reach pretty different conclusions. I mean, we've already discussed that, Scientists have this kind of idea of, of that they, you know, that they share in and try to convey to the public, and like Neil deGrasse Tyson did, yeah. right, of scientific <laughs> certainty, right? And so uh -huh. you think, you ask yourself, why do they do this, right? It's just a simple mistake. They could just put it right. But the problem is that if scientists said that that all their answers were uncertain and provisional and so on and so forth, like we wouldn't pay them big bucks to right. give us answers about stuff, right? Yeah. And so, so this is why scientists push the idea of scientific certainty all the time and why they don't get involved in discussions about by, with social scientists, with philosophers of science, who have yeah. all shown that scientific, science is provisional, that science is opinionated, that science is not objective, because, you know, these are just people doing science, right? What we see is, you know, people with conflicts of interest come up with bad answers on scientific questions. People who are funded by pharmaceutical industries tend to produce positive results for the pharmaceuticals they do yeah. research on. We know all this, right? Yeah. But scientists nevertheless spend a huge amount of time in denial of all this evidence. They don't want to discuss it. They don't want to go there. But, but members of the public have to go there, right? We have to be more savvy than that. We have to see through this kind of veil that science likes to, the veil of objectivity, if you like, that scientists like to present about themselves mm -hmm. yeah you you said something on james corbett a while back when it was definitely more like the peak of all this fervor around trump and the pandemic and you know the the china rhetoric and you know all this stuff um and and we get we do get a little political on this podcast sometimes especially around covid where you said that the left needs to have an adult relationship with science and that really stuck out to me because it was at a time when everything was just you know like 
if if Trump says it, the opposite's true. You know, like lockdowns are totally unass uh, unassailable. They they work. You know, all this stuff uh, mm -hmm. that it absolutely did not come from a lab in China. That that's racist to propose that. You know, like these kind of things. And you know, Glenn and I were just really quickly we were just like, well, we're you know we're we're broadly on that political spectrum, but we don't believe we don't necessarily believe what you guys are right. proposing here. You know, we we don't. You know, and I've, I feel a lot of people have been kind of woken up this year. Maybe not a lot, but like a, a sizable percentage is knows something is wrong with with our rhetoric around this. Yeah. And it's also mm -hmm. funny that, you know, you're talking that, you know, the Gates Foundation is a right wing neoliberal, you know, yeah, uh, organization. And, you know, people on the left largely pay, you know, they, they'll pay lip service to being anti-colonialism or something. And then they'll support the Gates Foundation, right? Which yeah. is one of the, you know, which is like doing the modern version of that, essentially, right? There's no clearer example, you know, just taking over the entire African continent with agriculture and with vaccines and with all, you know, experimental medicines and things and in India and Bangladesh and stuff. Do you have any comments on that or do you want to elaborate on that? Because that really stuck out, out to me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the left wing media, it's been the worst place to discuss the origin theory mm -hmm. yeah you know traditionally you know i've written articles for for left-wing media outlets and no, basically none of them with some very small exceptions have carried anything we've written about the coronavirus wow. Wow. not about conflicts of interest not about the origins not about the dangers of gain of function research right it's like it's like they they bought into this whole you know trump must be wrong about his theories of the origin but they also think of themselves, you know, predating that, they think of themselves as pro-science, right? Yeah. And Left wing is it's their, the science their party. Their understanding yeah. of, pro, of what that means to be pro-science is unquestioning, right? It's exactly buying into the mythology of science that we just discussed. Yeah. But that makes it very difficult for those people to then backtrack, even when Trump is out of office. And yeah, what yeah. they've done is they've fallen for this, right? Like at the beginning, I don't know if you know who Peter Daszak is. No. Maybe sure. probably readers don't, listeners don't know. But Peter Daszak, he is the president of the EcoHealth Alliance. Okay. The EcoHealth Alliance is a pretend One Health nonprofit based in New York City. And they were taking money from the National Institutes of Health and they were giving it to the Wuhan Institute of Virology and they were doing virus collection research. They were doing gain of function research. They were doing all kinds of stuff with bat coronaviruses, right? Which in all probability led to this pandemic. So Peter Daszak, he was put onto the, uh, the WHO investigation that just went to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The Eat Lancet Commission has a, has a uh, so the Lancet is the medical journal. They have a commission and Peter Daszak is also a member of that. He's actually the head of that, uh, mm -hmm. that, that commission, basically to look into the origins of the virus. And I think they've received enough flack, they may never do anything. But, but so he basically tweeted, he's been one of those people who's been interviewed in numerous times in the New York Times, numerous times in all the kind of mainstream media outlets. He's written articles in The Guardian. He's written... Uh, He's been on CNN, interviewed at length, you know, and so far he's been everywhere in the media. Basically, Democracy Now!, for example, that was right. one of the red flags that came up with for me right at the beginning of the pandemic. 
uh, more than a year ago now. He appeared on Democracy Now! and basically said that the idea that it came from a lab was pure baloney, right? But what no, no, Democracy Now! didn't tell their listeners and what none of these media uh, outlets are telling their listeners is that his organization was funding the Wuhan Institute of Virology and their back <laughs> coronavirus research, yeah. right? So, so even so Democracy guy, Now! Like, the Wuhan yeah. investigation and yeah. so on and so forth. But what's interesting is that he tweeted pretty much at the beginning that that basically that there was a firstly it was a conspiracy theory but secondly pointing out that Donald Trump was that what Donald Trump was saying right so he he himself politicized the issue right so he actually encouraged people to see that Donald Trump to to see it as a left right yeah. issue yeah and so what you've ended up with is you know the the newspapers have actually done decent reporting on the on the origins of the coronavirus actually fairly to dramatically right wing outlets and and some of the one of the best has been newsweek which you know which appears to have become a, a radical right wing yeah magazine. yeah all of a sudden yeah 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 it's kind of interesting but they've also published some of the best articles especially at the, the beginning about yeah. the origins of the virus, yeah, and so, so they were one of the one of the outlets that kind of kept the ball rolling, if yeah. you like. You know, there are a bunch of people doing original research on Twitter, and a bunch of people, find, you know, really find you know, like Alina Chan, finding out all kinds of interesting information. But but these right wing outlets basically have monopolized the field. But the problem is that if because uh, the left is not paid attention to the data, yeah. right? Because it doesn't have this adult relationship with science where, you know, you can respect science, but still question it, right? Mm -hmm. But they don't have that relationship. And so what that means is that all the discussions about the origins of the virus have been twinged, tinged with this like anti-China rhetoric, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Whereas if it had been equally discussed in the left-wing media and the right-wing media, right? there would have been a much more balanced discussion about who's really responsible for this, right? If the U.S. is funding the research, but it's happening in China, who is responsible, right? So all these outlets like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, they're all giving this like a China twist, mm -hmm. right? And they're using it to like needle China and to whip up, you know, anti-China, anti-Asian, whatever, yeah. mm -hmm. right? which wouldn't have been possible if the left had also pointed been at the same time been pointed or would have been much harder if the left had also been pointing out that that this is a problem that isn't really about China it's about the PVIC right this research yeah. could have happened anywhere right yeah. we're talking you know i'm saying to you the fixer of all this is the gates foundation china is just the location where the research was done mm -hmm. that's all it was yeah Right, but 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 the right wing media is turning it into a into a a little a little way to whip up uh, anger against China, and they're yeah. succeeding to some extent, mm -hmm. right? And so, but but this is part of the pushback that we get, right? As people say, well, you want to follow the facts, or you claim you want to follow the facts, but but people scientists are basically saying, well, articles written about your theory and so on and so forth. They're basically whipping up anti-Chinese rhetoric. Yeah. And yeah. so this this harms the discussion. So so 
all these people are politicizing it. The left is politicizing it. Yes. But the scientists like Peter Daszak, right, who are defending themselves, they are encouraging this politicization. Yeah. Because they see that as a way of, of defending themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And and also it's funny coming from somebody who doesn't have a scientific background, but I was taught as a kid that I was on the side of science by default because of my politics. <laughs> Right. Like I, I was like I because I, I didn't grow up super religious. Right. Because that's really yeah. wh where this comes from. It's either science or religion. I feel like to a lot of just non, you know, just just regular civilians. Right. People that are yeah. that are that. So when somebody's on democracy now, like you said, democracy now, who might be one of the only people who push back against CNN on a lot of topics like like yeah. uh, Israel and Palestine or, or things like that. And they might have somebody like Noam Chomsky on to uh, give some anti-imperialist rhetoric and stuff. But when they're going along with what CNN saying, hook, line and sinker, the left is like, well, I, I have to believe that or else I'm the religious yep. freak that doesn't, you know, that doesn't even know what the, the earth is. You know, I mean, if the earth's flat or uh, it gets obfuscated all into that little thing. So yeah. I can see why that's really harmful. Yeah, and it's also it's also just baby brain to to think that, and I I do I'm not denying that there is anti-China rhetoric that that is that does lead to racist results and that's bad and we need to stop that. But I can imagine that a the average citizen of China, you know, it's interesting. You know, maybe they don't have the opportunity to speak out like Americans do on these topics. And we're kind of failing them by not addressing these subjects. They're probably concerned about this stuff, right? Because it's not like it's not like the Wuhan Institute of Virology is China or the Chinese people. You know what I mean? It's not. It's it, yeah. It, it's this dumb equation. I don't know. Yeah. It's. Well, yeah, they, I, yeah. I mean, you have you have many people, you know, and you see this very clearly in the New York Times conflating the CCP mm. and the government of China and the yeah. people of China and yeah. the geographical yeah. country of China. Mm -hmm. Right. Like like. These are all very different things if you yeah. want to delve into them, right? But, but you know, the, the way that the rhetoric works in the New York Times is they, sometimes they'll call it China. Sometimes they'll call it the Communist Party. Sometimes they'll call it uh, Beijing, right? They'll use all these different words. And, and what they're trying to do is muddle up in your mind what it is we're really talking about here. The people who are who were basically responsible within China for whatever lab leak happened or whatever, you know, whatever the disaster was. And also the disaster of, uh, you know, the follow-up and the failure to like understand what happened soon after and the failure to tell other countries about what was going on. Those are the Chinese elites, yeah. right? right? Just the same as, you know, the people who are responsible for funding them in this country are the elites is the gates foundation it's the farmer it, it is the nih it's people in washington right mm -hmm. so so that but they want to confuse you know china wants you to confuse <laughs> those the top right. and the bottom right and we our government and our media wants us to confuse the top and the bottom of china and the better job what we can do of separating all these things out the better our understanding will be yeah, uh, really, really interesting. I, I, um, 
We've kept you for a long time, but I just just real fast. Last thing, I, we'd love to have you on again to talk about what I'm about to get into next time. But I would feel hard pressed to not bring sure. this up now since it is a newer piece. Is uh, your piece that um, is pretty recent, if I'm not mistaken? Um, Agriculture's greatest myth. Um, came out Monday. Monday so yeah brand new um so it's on independentsciencenews.org i will link it in the uh, in the notes of the show but um if you want to just uh go into that just a little bit and then like i said an- another time i would love to make that the subject of a conversation but just what what is what yeah, is agriculture's well, greatest it myth is, it is also a big topic right mm-hmm. so so the the biggest myth of agriculture is that we can't feed ourselves or we will fail to feed ourselves in the future right and this is a myth that agribusiness feeds off, right? They say, they always want to say that, you know, small farms, family farms, organic farms, sustainable agriculture, permaculture, agroecology, none of these things can feed the world, right? And, and but the reality that farmers understand is that they're always gluts of whatever it is they want to sell, right? They, you know, the farmers who sell corn, the farmers who sell soybeans, the farmers who sell milk, the farmers who sell cotton, they know that there are surpluses, right? Prices are low because there's basically always a surplus. And the basically, you know, the, all the anecdotal evidence, if you travel around the world, if you talk to anybody who works in any part of agriculture, they'll always tell you that there's too much food, too much produce, too much whatever it is. It's just, it's hard to, to shift product right? And so prices are low. And they've been falling, right? For, for all these commodities, right? the real, the real uh, the inflation adjusted prices of all these products, like wheat, for example, they've fallen for 150 years, right? Mm-hmm. So like nowadays, you have, in order to make your living off growing wheat or corn or soybeans, you have to own thousands and thousands of acres. Whereas in the old days, you just needed an acre or two, right? So that shows you, all all the data shows you that basically we're producing too much food all the time. And, and, but the rhetoric of the food system of policymakers of agribusiness and so forth is that we're all just about to go hungry if we don't like ramp up production and yield more and invest in research and so on and so forth. And what we showed, what they always cite, right, in support of their view are a small number of mathematical models of the global food system that make predictions, right? The Food and Agriculture Organization that's based in Rome is part of the UN. They, they, they are the main, you know, the original, if you like, producers of these models. And that what their model basically says is that we, you know, we're going to be short of food if we don't do something careful, to do something clever or innovative or whatever it is in the future. And what we, what our, our analysis showed, my analysis showed, is that basically these food models are assumption-driven, and they have certain key assumptions in them that basically overestimate demand and underestimate supply. So they create the illusion of scarcity mm-hmm. inside the models that that are basically then used by agribusiness as their PR by these organizations to justify their own existence and their, all their interferences in agriculture, when the reality is that farmers could perfectly well feed us if we just left them to it. Mm. And so, so this is a very important uh, point to make, that, that these, all these arguments, you know, the reasons why we have GMOs, the reasons why we need to spray pesticides, the reason why we need to cut down the rainforest, the reason why we need to have dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico, 
These are all basically, uh, we don't need to, to, to basically push agriculture to the max because we're already producing far too much food. So these, right. all these things are unnecessary. Crazy. Yeah. 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 Let's get into that on, on the next episode. Yeah. And then yeah, I could. just wanted to preview cause it is, it yeah. is out. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate you, uh, joining us doctor. Really appreciate it. Yeah. That was yeah it's been Thank fun. Th- thanks very much for inviting me. And, and, and yeah, I'd be willing to come back again and discuss that. Cause we can go into that. A lot. Exactly. I, exactly. <laughs> I, interesting yeah. things exactly. How to and, solve climate change and so forth. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That would be, that'd we'll be great. That. So yeah, um, cool. real fast, I just just because you said it at the beginning where everybody can find you, where they can find your work. I don't know if you're on social media or not. Um, uh, yeah, just, we just have look. a Twitter. We have a Twitter account at B-I-O-S-R-P. It stands for the Bioscience Resource Project. Okay. And we have a Facebook page. Uh, and then um, but our main website is independentsciencenews.org. Got it. Perfect. Sounds good. Great. Well, uh Folks, I, I I think I think you're going to become a favorite of our listeners. I think that's a that's a prediction for me uh, because <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot of people a lot of people want more science on the show. A lot of people want more uh, science. But again, as we discussed, what is science, right? Or you know, we we have to have an opposition to what the mainstream opinion of science is. So, uh, doctor, I hope you have a really nice rest of your day. And uh, to the listeners, I'm at Glenn Rockney. He's at CryptoSci on Twitter. And uh, this is at RareCandyPod1. Uh, shout out to everyone who bought merch from the Griff Shop. And uh, everybody have a nice day. All right. Thanks. Thanks Thank so much. much.